responsibility for me at the practitioner level sits with how did you support? You know, what were the mechanisms of that support? What was the impact of that support? And so it should probably never be, I've got three gold medals on my CV. It should probably be, I've worked with a number of athletes who can objectively tell you a story about how I had an impact. And that's, uh, you know, I think that's a nudge for someone quite difficult. You know, there's like a halo a halo of success that comes with associating yourself with a World Cup winning team doesn't make you any more competent if they're just culturally and discursively built into a great team because it's the number one sport in the country and their development pathways, participation pathways and the whole way the sport is organised in the country means they're going to have the, the biggest pool to work from with the best talent. Hello there and a very warm welcome or welcome back to the podcast. My name is Steve Ingham. I'm an applied scientist and leader from the world of high performance sport. And on the podcast, I explore all aspects of human performance, whether that is getting stronger, fitter, mentally more prepared, eating better, playing better, leading and coaching in different ways, but also how we perform in work individually and as teams. And the way I do that is by speaking with great scientists, practitioners, researchers, coaches, athletes and entrepreneurs. I'm also keen to talk to people from outside of sports, people who are just interested in how we perform as humans. If you enjoy the podcast, then please do share it with friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe. And if you want to support and champion us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. And this week's guest who's going to help us explore performance is Ryan King. Now, Ryan is a strength and conditioning coach by trade. He's got a background working at the English Institute of Sport and the England FA. And in addition to his conditioning work, Ryan has led numerous teams, for example, managing the women's pathway team at the FA, the performance support team and the innovation work. But beyond the job titles is the way that Ryan works, which is highly considered thoughtful and holistic. And when I say holistic, what I mean is that he fully respects the climate and the environment, the timing, as well as the actual problem that's on the table. In this discussion, we explore how to work in simple and complex situations, how we create systems, but we need to be making sure that we're staying flexible too, and how we can get a handle on measuring our impact. But central to all of the concepts that we cover is harnessing people and their full capability to create performance. I don't think I'll ever tire of speaking to Ryan. He's one of these people who always brings a fresh insight and perspective. And on that note, you'll notice that the podcast doesn't really officially start. We just got nattering beforehand and I kind of forgot to (laughs) say, let's start. Uh, And so this was the point at which we thought this was about right to, to share it with you. I think I, I was quite lucky and, you know, the time that I spent in institute context, I worked across most governing bodies. Like I worked through, across a lot of governing bodies and uh, I supported a lot of the coaches that end up working within the governing bodies, the mentoring, technical leadership, but, uh, different types of support. And I guess you get this real sense that each governing body is completely sort of contextually discursive. And so the skill set of the practitioner to be able to flex to the to the context that they're in, but stay true to the professional skills they've got is a really interesting paradigm. And so yeah. when do you become culturally immersed? And as a result of that, everything you do is, is really sort of tailored and shaped to that. And if you've spent a lot of time in one governing body, as, as many of, of my old colleagues have been and are, their, their uh, mental model of the world is very fixed. And that, that, I think, is, uh, is, is interesting. You know, what, what could practitioners learn that could make them more flexible to an environment, but, but not at the cost of letting go of, of some of the critical professional skills and competencies that you actually need to deliver a, a valuable service? And I, I, um, I constantly enjoy thinking about that because, you know, what, what good looks like to one person in one environment having always been there might look really different in another um, environment and the two don't speak to one another and yet the role title is very much the same. 
Yeah, okay. Look, we we've I think we've just started um the the podcast chat. Can we <laughs> can we just keep going, right? Is that all right? Yeah, just yeah, absolutely. A classic case of um pre-chat turning into oh no 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 don't stay no hang on let's save that because trying to reproduce spontaneous conversation never kind of works but um can i can i just pick up that idea of benefiting from that cultural awareness expertise you the fabric of an organization the psychological norms that 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 go on the societal sort of dynamics um but being weighed down by the the wet that sense of oh we've done that we've tried it before um we we have our way of working we like that has that perhaps potentially has been infused by success and experience um be fascinated to get your thoughts on how you balance that that um that experience in context and in situ versus keeping things fresh so that you're injecting new insights and new challenge? I think sport is con- contextually discursive. And so um, its origins are, are set way in the past and there is a way of doing things. And when practitioners enter into a sport from university, a different sport, wherever they've come from, I think sometimes there is a great deal of pressure on a practitioner to come in and feel like they show value which I think can make them push pretty hard pretty quickly, which in my experience, sports push back against. They don't appreciate that. And, and often I think that doesn't help the practitioner to, to embed and to understand the environment and understand the way that they work, understand the language, understand the tools and the skills that are part of that environment. And so I think for practitioners who have clearly got skills and competencies who enter into a sport, it's really important to not feel pressure to show value straight away, but rather to to just seek to understand and to really amp your curiosity and really get a sense of, okay, what is this environment and what do they actually need from me in the role that I'm fulfilling? I think what's really interesting is you get a sweet spot when you start in a new sport where you can be completely open to learning, but very quickly it becomes the norm and you're part of their normal. And the question is, do you sacrifice your professional skills and competencies and the tools that you've, you've been brought in for in favour of delivering what they want and what they've always had? Or do you play a game of um, cat and mouse? So you always stay true to what your your professional beliefs are, what your, your understanding, that the capabilities and skills that you bring to the organisation that you're working with, and then slowly try to, to bring in terms that might be considered innovation or it might just be best practice, or it might be world-class basics that they're just not actually yet doing. And so um, you can't make any of those judgments until you truly understand the environment that you're you're in. And for me, to do that, you've absolutely got to defer judgment. Uh, you've got to have a low ego because you've got to be keen to learn and be really opening, open to learning. Um, mm. I've got a couple of, couple of questions on that. One about different types of environments. It would be good to get your insights in but but um just picking up on that idea of uh, almost disrupting versus conforming and um i i often find that uh new staff particularly young new staff but doesn't necessarily have to be that have this open questioning approach when they first come into an environment um which is super valuable for them to understand as you say um, I, I find that often as a, as a manager or a leader, I find that actually quite disrupting for me because when they say, oh, why do you do that? Or um, what, what's informing that decision? And I'm like, I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> and I find it quite disrupting for, for me because some of those questions um, resurface things that are important, reevaluate some decisions that have, have gone before but also expose some of those traditions and and soft philosophies that are formed from groupthink, which I don't necessarily think are then healthy. And I go away driving, thinking, oh, driving home, thinking, um, right, we need to re-examine that. That's not right. Um, that that simple, humble, open, uh, naive question has exposed what actually is dogma, and. Um, 
And so through that questioning, and then I might re-explain, what I'm trying to do probably is get that person to conform or to adapt. Uh, But actually what we're losing is some of that freshness um, as they start to embed into an environment. And it's... um, have you got any ideas about how you keep that that going? How you keep that encouragement um, of of people's open, what if kind of crazy questions that could feel quite disruptive, but but actually are just simply there to look to try and make things better? Yeah, I think it was Steve Jobs that said, um, "You don't employ smart people and tell them what to do," and I think it's quite. Um, it's old school management and leadership to believe that you're going to bring someone in, they're going to pick up the role of the last person and execute it as they did. Why would you, why would you want to do that? And, um, and, I, and I think environments have to be learning environments to, to succeed now. They've always got to be trying to push the frontiers of their knowledge. Um, and we're all knowledge workers now. We're, we're not working in, in industry producing manufacturing we manufacture knowledge and we apply it to create newness that's useful um, and so first thing is how do you create a learning environment as a leader uh, you need to develop safety you need to develop trust you've got to be constantly curious you've got to strive for openness and you've got to to create an environment where no question is taboo no matter how difficult it is to answer but my belief is you have to create a process that sits underneath that to enable you to have lots and lots of divergence, which is about creating dissonance and creating new ideas and, and being really innovative, actually. And then create time for convergence where you really begin to uh, dial in on the things that are useful and then try and deliver on those. So it's like it's borrowed from the themes of Agile um, and, and that whole sprint methodology. Um, which is which is kind of interesting, or depending on the stuff you read, there's like blue work and red work, and so like blue blue work being the thinking work, red work being the doing work, and then how you as a leader or somebody who's facilitating a team enables the team to be able to deliver against that, and uh, and then the other thing for me is that in all the teams that I've ever managed or led, Steve, I realise that I'm probably the most stupid person in the room. I really want to hear from the people that I've led and that I've managed. And and actually, I've become so passionate about that as I've absolutely butchered management when I first started it and really let down the people that I was there to manage. As a, <laughs> uh, but it's awful. I look back on it now. I started off as a sports science lecturer and I feel bad for the people that I was lecturing to. I'd just come out of university. I had nothing to teach them. And then I was quickly sort of given this management gig and I thought that, my mental model, my way of looking at the world was the right way. And and I enforced that on people and it stifled them in the way that they wanted to express themselves. As a leader, I discover it's really liberating, actually, um, to let go of all that and let people let people wrestle with it with a bit of support, not, no answers, and then see what they come up with. And so create the right climate and drive a learning environment and put absolute trust in your people and the things you can achieve, I think, are really, really exciting. And then if they, if they were through their questions, which you've normalized as the thing to do, create dissonance in you, or you find it hard to answer, then there's, I suppose there's a couple of things. You could be so um, unconsciously competent because of your time under tension that you've, as Lord Sugar says on The Apprentice, I've forgotten more than you know. And I love that statement because a lot of our expertise is tacit. But it percolates up when we need it in a in a non-conscious way. Um, if you're consciously competent, then you can articulate your tacit knowledge. And so the question becomes: Do we we can't be consciously competent? Because as human beings, to be consciously competent all of the time means we've got to be able to rationalize and articulate everything all of the time. That's a a really tough shift. And from an evolutionary perspective, we wouldn't be on planet Earth now if 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 we couldn't couldn't lock in tacit chunks of knowledge and just let them enact out in behaviour. So um, that dissonance of, I can't articulate my why for that anymore. What you said, it really interests me because I bet you there is stuff that is down to groupthink, um, which you do, but has never been questioned at a deep enough level to assess whether it's the right thing to do or not. And in sports where there's a very strong cultural social origin, and in some cases where it's very coach-led with that, there is practices that 
struggle to be challenged by the sports science and medicine paradigms of today, I think. Mm. Well, there's loads in, loads in there. Um, but if I can pick up on that particular dynamic straight, straight off around your experience of working in different types of environments, and, and I'm particularly drawn to the example of objective, uh, linear, energetic, um, individual sports versus highly social, team, tribal um, operations and just how open those are to to change and i think i'm i'm just i'm i'm curious to know your experience having lived in both environments but also having consulted where it seems as though a decision to include something based on evidence or logic or it makes sense is probably a little bit higher than the tribal societal we haven't done it we've done it like this for for ages we've got uh, a lot of identity and and family to to protect rather than necessarily uh, changing practice because it it moves the the needle i'm keen to get your thoughts on the different environments yeah do you know i think in the institute if you think about the fabric upon which you work it either encourages and embraces and newness that's useful and is prepared to be a little bit more innovative in its approach and embrace um, different ways of doing things more quickly. Whereas if you're in a governing body and you work within the governing body, perhaps in some of the team environments, it is different because there's, there's a very ingrained way of doing things. There's usually quite a lot of bureaucracy and there's quite a lot of complexity within that bureaucracy based on the departments you work. So I think the, fir- the first thing is, if you're in a, an institute context or you're in a new sport, or maybe you work for Red Bull, and it's it's wrapped up in the DNA that you you're allowed to innovate and be seen to be an innovator and creative. And actually, I think it's become quite fashionable to to talk about in, being innovative and bringing in new insight. And I think in go, more formed governing bodies or governing bodies that have been around for a bit longer, I think that becomes a bit more difficult especially if you're working for the governing body or perhaps within a a footballing club. Um, There's a lot more people that you've got to influence and infiltrate and get trust from before they might take on ideas that are different. But also you've got to, it's not just the coaches and the rest of the multidisciplinary team that you've got to, to influence with your ideas and perhaps with evidence that you can't argue with. You've also got to get it over the line with a player who are a player or an athlete who might be quite ritualistic in the way that they do things and who will have learned across a period of time that their approach is the way the way that works because they're now they're now successful i think we need to think more longitudinally than tomorrow um, as people that support um, sport team behind the team but i think at times we work in the terrain so it's quite a, a transit transactional here and now relationship which from a sports science and medicine perspective is really difficult because everything that we do is an, is an iteration of a process over time. So how do you talk about the strength of an athlete or reducing a prevalence of a type of injury if your intervention window is six days? Um, it, doesn't, it, just, it doesn't work that way, does it? It's a physiological process that takes time to enact. Um, in the... In the the institute sort of perspective where you, where they really embrace innovation, the, the tension there for me is I think there's a pressure on practitioners to, to think that they're doing new and novel things. And I think until until you've bottomed out world-class brilliant basics, you know, the absolute bread and butter of the discipline that you're in within its silo, then I'm not so sure that you need to push up to a multidisciplinary way of working. And I'm not so sure that the multidisciplinary team needs to try and find novel stuff if they haven't actually got a good bank of basics in the, in the cupboard. And so what, what, going back to the beginning of the point, if you think about the fabric on which we work, I think there is a pressure to conform to certain behaviours. And unless you understand that, you'll either set yourself up for failure um, or success, depending on how smart you are about acknowledging that, goes back to our first point. You know, I think you have to be a true Sherlock Holmes to the environment that you're in before you begin to think about um, picking at threads or, or pushing an agenda or believing that there's a better way to do things. 
the only power that I've seen where you leap, you go to the basics, sorry, you go to the innovation and you go to the shiny stuff and you go to the, oh, look, there's a clever little funky new idea. You go to that bit first um, is, is as a method of a hook and a buy-in rather than here's a bunch of really boring things that require diligence and and for you to work hard every, every minute of the day, uh, nutrition, sleep, uh, rest and recovery, etc., etc. Um, if there's some resistance around that, then getting a hook that means that people are excited about finding an edge that is novel and perhaps completely unique but then building in, oh, well, if you're going to truly benefit from that, you need to do some of the basics. <laughs> so it's almost a little tactical uh, shift of here's the clever, shiny stuff. But if you're really going to do that well, is you need to, to get the basics going. That's the only flip that I, I'd probably create an exception for there. Yeah, I, I totally see that. And I, I do agree with it. But, or and perhaps, um, that does create noise and a signal. And if we're talking about the iteration of process over time, that noise might end up trying to push a, a rock up the hill from a start point that isn't the right start point. And so I would argue that perhaps really good innovation might just be get stronger. And, you know, that might blow people's mind because it's so obvious. But if you're not doing it, it might be newness that's useful. And so I, it's interesting where we jump to when we talk about innovation, isn't it? You know, we, um, and, and how we utilise that in sport. And perhaps uh, when you're working in a, a league-related environment where winning is everything, you know, more acute short-term interventions that create a performance edge are different to when you're thinking across four years with two qualification events. And at the end of that quadrennial cycle, you get your moment. And so, you know, they require very much different types of thinking to deliver the outcome. There are different performance problems to solve, I think, which obviously means you're going to use different tool sets to get to get the solutions that you need. Yeah, I mean, if it, maybe I could just rewind a, a little bit there in terms of just this very notion of trying to make sense of complex, dynamic, ever-evolving worlds and, and any of the frameworks that you've either developed or that you've you've learned about that that could illuminate that i'm struck by um the survey data that that sort of asks um practitioners and industry leaders in in high performance you know what do you know what it takes to be successful and you know something like three quarters of people will say yes but that often alludes to the fact that 25 percent don't really understand what's going on <laughs> a lot of the time um, so I'm curious to know your thoughts about, I suppose, in the moment of finding out the need, looking at the subjective symptoms that people might be reporting, looking at the, around the dynamics of, uh, of a team, and then trying to think, what's going on here? Um, what, what have you found to be successful in terms of frameworks to understand uh, context, make decisions and problem solve? Mm. Um, I guess uh, through my journey, I, I probably, I would say, you ever heard of the, the, the sort of duck analogy, which is the, the whole is made up by the sum of its parts. And so if you, if you Google that, you get these really nice images of this dump, uh, dump, dump, duck. You, and you, in it, you can see sort of all, the, all these mechanical parts that interact together to create the outcome. And it's all about reductionism. So, you know, if you look at, if you look at, chaos and complexity and um, uh, simplicity, uh, it's a continuum. And essentially, when you start in an environment, I think you start off with, with the simples. So if you're a new practitioner and you've come out of your uh, undergraduate, your master's degree, and you've got your professional qualifications, you've been giving certain competencies about what you should be delivering under the auspices of that role whether it be a clinical role or a, or a performance-related role. And so you've got a basic landscape from which to make sense of what is truly complex because complexity, by my definition, is integrated uh, coupling of lots of different systems that if you they interrelate, they communicate with one another, and, and if you pick up any part of it, it, it's really hard to understand the whole. 
So when we're working in true complexity, we're working in a dynamic system where there's a lot of um, integration and, and interreliance on the moving parts. That's really difficult for a practitioner. I think it's really difficult. Well, it's a different thing, difficult in sport. And I think when you listen to coaches talking, co- uh, practitioners talking, they talk about complexity and that could become somewhat of a shield because it's so complex. It doesn't matter what I do. Oh, it's complex and, I'm, and I make sense of it by saying that. But hang on, we're meant to work in, in a professional um, way that we can show objectively what we've done and what the effect of that has been. And at its most basic level, if you take a first principles approach or a duck approach, then maybe at the simple level, what you first need to do is do something that shows that you're having some form of effect. And so I've built out some ideas about in silo, in the first order of practitioner effectiveness, just pick up on the things that you know you can influence through the skills that you've got and start doing that and start collecting some data to show that you're having an influence now, that influence doesn't necessarily need to be a performance influence. For me, that's actually the third order. In the first order, um, just just on that individual athlete, show that there's an intervention and a response to that. And that's like, for me, a, a big tick. And then if you push up into the second order and you look maybe with your physiotherapy colleague, you might say, is the person more available? Um, are they less injured? Have we had an influence on a shared profile? you know, a musculoskeletal screen? And if the answer is yes, then that's the second tick. So in a chaotic world, you've already now had two positive influences on an individual. And then in the third order, you might say, is there any correlation between some GPS data that we've extracted from the the game-related data? Or is there some component of performance, more minutes and more availability, better performance outputs? And if the answer is there's a correlation between a gain and some variable of performance, then that's the third tick and you've created even more order out of what might be chaos. And then if you iterate on those first three orders over a period of time, then in the fourth order, only then perhaps you you earn the right to evolve and to build your vocabulary and develop further ideas because you're all of a sudden earning your worth at the first order right through to the third, which means you can begin to push. You can begin to push the envelope of your practice. And so... I don't know whether that answers your question, but I think I think in a, a chaotic world, um, you have to have a mental model, a way of making sense of that, which if we're talking about professional skills and professional capability, it's, it's what makes sense with the tools that you've got. And then it's building out processes and methods and interventions that actually enable you over time um, to have a positive influence. Mm, very thought-provoking. It's... Um... There's a little bit of probability and permission in that, isn't there? In that, what am I probably going to be able to influence and go for the bigger ones as opposed to some of the edgier, less proven techniques? There's a permission to act. Well, um, this is your greatest need, so let's work on on some of those. And, and then you're potentially creating the evidence base for further permissions of, oh, look, there's a dynamic here or there's a is an observation that then warrants some further conversation from which now we might get into some more P's, like problem solving as to, okay, what if there's a relationship here? Now that we've got some evidence base, what could we do about it? What what might shift that further? What might create uh, further um, improvements in this? Is Does this offer a competitive advantage? So that, that problem solving space does that does that naturally latch to your higher order uh, practice levels? Um, I, yeah, I think I think you earn the right. To, as Einstein said, for every question that you ask, you need to develop a new level of thinking uh, to solve it. And I, I suppose my four order of themes is sort of pinched from that. You know, if you if you iterate on on basic concepts over time. underlining the point you made which is if it's transactional you failed from the start 
So you need to build, you need to build not, not only buy-in, but belief that, that what you're trying to do and where you're trying to go and how you'd like to help them is going to serve their greater needs. So although there's a neat model with four orders in it there, it's, again, complex, isn't it? Because there's an interaction that has to happen across a number of people to make that happen. The greater the complexity and the harder the problem, my belief is that's when you really want to tap into this idea of cognitive diversity. And so what what I love and I think is the most evolved way of working is when you've got this brilliant team of people who are in a learning environment where there is really a thorny, wicked problem and you say to them, well, first of all, can we identify the problem? Because that in itself requires a type of thinking to do. And then second of all, how do we go about solving that? And uh, this idea of looking at a pro- the same problem from a variety of perspectives and then giving freedom to generate solutions, I think is really, really exciting. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of our conversation, you can we can think of individual ability and then we can take individual ability times the number of people in the team and we can utilize both to different outcomes depending on the problem space that we're working in. Um, and when, when, when we're trying to facilitate performance in the roles that I've sat in previously, that's what I've tried to do with the teams. So it's like, there's the bit that you do strength, conditioning, physiotherapy, lifestyle analysis, whatever it is, and you do that well, but also as a group, we can innovate and we can problem solve together on the stuff that's the bigger, harder questions. And so that, that's, quite, that's quite interesting to me. And when you, when you liberate the team and you take less ownership of that, I think really exciting things happen. I think liberate's a really powerful word in that context that uh, it's, um, it's a step change in leadership and, and management i think where you typically there's a um, hierarchical sort of uh, power-based uh let's defer to the most experienced or the most highly paid or the the person with the most responsibility and and yet actually opening up uh, an issue and saying right here here it is let's kick this about um is is um it's quite empowering for a team but it also requires some rules and some boundaries, doesn't it? Some some provocative questions that can unlock it. Um, and so that could be a case of, right, here's my idea. Criticise it. Um, what would you do with this if we had a million pounds or we had no money, but we had to change it? Have you got any other sort of killer questions or prompts that that can enable teams to to sort of shed some of that hierarchical order would it be okay to say something about your idea <laughs> um limitation be completely self-deprecating and, and be honest i i don't know the answers um you, that's why you're here um, and creating absolute safety to learn together yeah. um in the, in the last team that i managed al- although i led the team all i did was create uh, boundary conditions and a climate that enabled us to have those conversations. And and I think we achieved some pretty cool stuff together as a group because the team were brilliant and because they were really keen to to explore some of the stuff that we needed to do. Some of the stuff we needed to do was really quite obvious. So we needed to develop a health check for to assess uh, club performance, for example. That was a big thorny piece of work that needed a lot of time under tension. They did all the heavy lifting. All I did was ask a couple of provocative questions um, and work really hard not to provide the solutions because I've, I've been in and around it a bit and I think I've got a level of confidence in saying, well, this is where you need to go. I've learned that's the worst thing you can do. I don't, I don't want to tell people what to do or where to go or even how to do it anymore. I just don't think it works. But what I do love doing is, uh, is like defer responsibility to them Obviously, I've got overall responsibility. They've got accountability, and um, and I love to give them that. And we celebrate we celebrate team successes when they do it well. We positively reinforce when they challenge. And uh, like you, when I've been given that dissonance or I've been put under pressure with questions, it's managing my ego and my my reactions to that because my reactions as the person that's leading the group can massively affect the behaviour of that team. So, and, and that's really hard to be aware of that all the time, you know? So if you're creating the climate and your behavior is out of kilter with what you're trying to achieve in that climate, I think you're goosed because your value, your values and your behaviors don't marry with what you're trying to get the team to do. Um, 
I will say, I think this is difficult for sport, and these aren't new ideas. If you if you read from business and um, and, and and lots of different areas of, of professional work, I think they're all over this stuff. You know, if you look at how you get really great team outputs, and you read all the stuff that's um, in management and business and leadership, it's a well published and written area, and yet. I haven't seen it adopted particularly well in sport. And I think it's such an ego-fueled environment. It's very difficult for those that lead not to be seen to lead, whatever that means. Um, and uh, and as a result of that, I think that just stifles what could be achieved. You know, the, the, together everyone achieves more absolutely means something to me. Um, you know, that ac- acronym of team and uh I, it would be great to see in sport us adopting more of a learning, learning-based approach and a more um, liberating approach for our practitioners. All right, there's lots surfacing on my mind, and I'm, I'm trying to swell something together here that that interlinks some of the concepts that you've covered. Um, that as as you go from <clears throat> that simple through to complex, my my interpretation here is that part of that is becoming more familiar with pattern recognition. This concept is going on here at the start. Okay, there's there's one concept. People are training and they're recovering. That's something like that. Oh, and now um, I'm now starting to recognize that that varies day to day. And so you're you're weaving in those those patterns and the experience comes from that pattern recognition which you can then accept that complexity and potentially skillfully work with it. My, my sense is that that comes from a, a desire for your brain to understand and be a little bit more automatic. So it's not having to do that hard, intense work that you're doing all the time when you're, when you're first starting out. Of, What's going on? It's so complex. I don't, know, I don't know who to speak to or where to go or what's happening anymore. Um, so it's, it seems to be sort of trying to calm things down in your brain by recognising those patterns. When you're talking about getting into that problem-solving space, it's, it's trying to... And, and so you—that's—that's that's what prompted me to ask this question. You used a couple of times this phrase, classic, classic conditioning kind of background, but the time under tension. And I'm assuming from that, what you're suggesting is that okay, we're going to get into an effortful space now. <laughs> this isn't this isn't steady state stuff. This is loading, and I need you to be concerted and um, intentional about your focus. Is that what I'm hearing from time under tension? A, a tacit intuitive throwaway comment to be fair i i think of time under tension is as time in an environment where you're you're sort of exposed to stuff oh okay i thought you meant it was like a, right we're going for it now we are going for it um <laughs> and this will require you to think differently um so and given that you said about um culture and environment so much does that warrant uh, you to be able to have to warm people up to thinking in a different way um either in that dedicated meeting on innovation or problem solving um in the same way that you might need to warm an athlete up to today we're going here and we're doing this and so here's the preparation here's the mindset i want you to bring into the session yeah there's so much in everything that you said there that that we we could unpack like for, for if you've read any of uh, Gary Klein's stuff on natural decision making, which I'm sure you've had this idea of pattern uh, recognition and mental simulation are really interesting. So I did a, a little bit of a blog on um, the time traveling practitioner. So this idea that you recognize patterns and you anticipate what's happening in the future and, and how you operate in that space is, is really fascinating. And then if you look at the work that Klein and Kahneman have done, so Kahneman and Tversky are eminent um, uh, Nobel Prize winner Kahneman on fast and slow thinking. So the idea of fast thinking is that it's intuitive and that it's reactive and it's of the moment and more reason type two thinking, which is it's harder. It, it pulls you out of ease and you've got to wrestle with it. Fits quite nicely with this analogy of, of problem solving versus skill doing. And I think for some practitioners, it's easier to be automatic 
and doing what you do rather than coming at it with this idea of um, vujade i.e. I'm not I'm not really, I'm, this doesn't feel familiar in fact it's completely novel and I've never done this before and I don't know how to solve it um, so so that based on where you started I thought that's really interesting for practitioners because they have to be intuitive and they have to be fast and they've got to operate in the, in the moment. They've got to be semi to non-deliberative in their decision-making processes. Um, and it's only when we problem solve that we become absolutely deliberative and we need to be more reasoned and more rational and more um, keen to tap into diversity to come up with better solutions. And so bringing that through to sort of your final point there, um, which was about how do you build that? Well, in the last team, we all started together. And so it was quite easy because we grew the team together in the way that we wanted to operate and how we wanted to deliver problem solving and projects in a way. And we normalized the behaviors as 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 a group because we collectively agreed the way that we wanted to operate together. And when we stepped out of that, we checked and challenged one another. Um, it's a different proposition when you come into a new environment. So when I when I landed at the EIS from the Scottish Institute of Sport, I had an assumption about the way the practitioners operated. And then therefore I landed with these practitioners and I assumed that they would be able to articulate their world, what they do, how they do it and how it's impactful in a really logical way. And that was a steep learning curve for me because they they, they didn't operate that way. They, we didn't have a shared mental model. And as a result of that, in the first three weeks of my interactions with them, I'd already put a wedge in between us. So it was a mistake. It was, it was, it was, Why was that? Was that because you were saying, what do you mean? What do you mean? How do you do it? Uh, show me how you've been impactful, you know, which I think, right. I think that's all really safe questions to ask based on my approach. But if you're not exposed to that way of working, that's enormously threatening. Yeah, okay. It's enormously threatening. And uh, and for a lot of practitioners who are operating in complexity and perhaps find it hard to justify objectively their impact, that becomes quite difficult because when you really boil it all down, in performance, winning is everything. Your face fitting is everything. And, um, and why would you rock the boat if a team is competitive or not, but you're safe and you're liked? You keep your head down and you keep doing what you do. But is that good enough? Is that good enough? If you want to keep your job, maybe. But if you want to really have an impact and be able to show how you're contributing to greater, I think it's really important that you, even if you don't know where you're going with it, build data sets and interrogate those data sets in ways that show that that you're having an impact in some way. And then, you know... uh, that, that becomes ever so important, you know, and the things I've said to a lot of the, the practitioners that I've mentored and coached over time is I really don't care the outcome. What I care about is the process. And if you can stand up and justify your process and show objectively how you've influenced, um, then that's your gold medal. So sometimes when you get to review at the end of a process in a, in a big sport and they've failed, um, it's the MTT that get thrown under the bus. But it's the athlete that's responsible for delivering on the day and it's the coach who's their confidant who's supposed to be helping and supporting that performance outcome with them. So accountability sits with them. Responsibility for me at the practitioner level sits with how did you support? You know, what were the mechanisms of that support? What was the impact of that support? And so it should probably never be I've got three gold medals on my CV. It should probably be I've worked with a number of athletes who can objectively tell you a story about how I had an impact. And that's, uh, you know, I think that's a nudge for someone quite difficult. You know, there's like a halo a halo of success that comes with associating yourself with a World Cup winning team. Doesn't make you any more competent if they're just culturally and discursively built into a great team because it's the number one sport in the country and their development pathways, participation pathways and the whole way the sport is organised in the country means they're going to have the, the biggest pool to work from with the best talent. Um, that's really challenging for practitioners, but I think it, it needs a bit of, it needs a, a bit of unpicking that at times. I was going to say, you know, if anyone's listening to that, probably press rewind for five minutes and replay that three or four times because there's so much value in that that healthy checks and and challenges from you to people um from the fairly what might feel quite superficial um team-based practitioner cv 
list of accomplishments is all about whether the team went up or stayed, you know, won the cup or um, that that's that's the sort of outcome as opposed to what did I actually do? Um, what what change? What idea did I introduce? Um, and I think there's there's a message there in as well also for for leaders that you know we talk about this pattern recognition and 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 making sure that you're uh, developing your your expertise in complex environments. But I know there's quite a bit of research around experience and power hindering that self awareness and and actually stopping us from doing our homework, seeking that sort of disconfirming evidence, looking out for falsehoods when you're experienced that's tough to do when when you're reliant on that expertise and actually a lot of people are looking to you for a confident insight or a a direction um have you got specific experience of of being able to try and create space there for leaders to be able to do that I think the first thing for me to say is I think it's really, really superficial um, to come in believing that whoever comes in is going to have the answers and they're going to be able to solve the problems. And I think an awful lot of what we do in sport is that it's a name, it's an individual, it's a CV. This is the next, this is the next great hope and this is what's going to deliver. Um, for me, it's so much more about the environment, the climate that you operate within, whether there's trust, whether there's safety, whether there's an emotionally intelligent environment. And if it is, great things can can happen, you know? And so with some of the best leaders that I've worked with, um, that's what what I've adopted from them, that's what I've taken from them. So um, high emotional intelligence, um, a genuine interest in your people and a genuine trust in them, builds better outcomes for me. Some of the worst leaders um, think they've got all the answers, close down debate and discussion and and conform to Hippo, the highest paid person's opinion, which is frustrating because why is everyone sitting in the room if they're going to sit and listen to somebody who's on a pedestal who believes they have the answers, especially when you've got a group of people who are so contextually immersed. So... um, you know, and, and I've got I've got leaders who I've worked with who've come into organisations and have just tried to dump on on the the new organisation what they've done in the past. It's been less sophisticated, it's been less evolved, and it's been a bit rubbish. It's actually set the organisation back. And I've come into organisations where the leader is quite didactic and um, and quite autocratic, and that that raises questions about the type of organisation that is. And so. Hopefully a more evolved and enlightened approach for the future, going back to where we started earlier, was this idea of, of in, in a knowledge work environment, everyone's got a massive contribution to make. But for, for that to be heard, you've got to make sure that they've got the confidence to be heard. With a young practitioner, that's really difficult because you've got to normalise. I, I really care what you think here. I really want to understand what you see. And, um, and let me share with a different eye what I see and what I think. And, you know... Tell me if you think that's rubbish or ask me questions, but let's let's truly truly go about creating a dialogue with one another on a on a peer-to-peer level. Definitely not on a power gradient. I think power gradients are an issue. So learning environments try and flatten those off. We recognize the quality of the people around us and we recognize that they're the contextually immersed people. As the leader, you've got to be across more people and you're probably having to focus more on integration and blend blend of skills how you wrap that round coach and team and the interface between the two at the local level with the team that you manage i guess what what you're trying to do is is make sure they're really confident in their lane but also make sure that everybody's confident to switch lanes share ideas and really uh you know metaphorically speaking get on the get on the motorway madness and you know you know talk to one another and you know change disciplines uh, share ideas and and take time to be really creative and recognise that we don't know very much uh, collectively um, because of the human condition, which means that we can't, we never will. And we'll always, uh, you know, if you're curious by mind, you'll continually go down cul-de-sacs and um, rabbit holes of learning, which is a really good thing. And we should, I think, in high performance sport, we should really embrace that. 
I, I like going down these rabbit holes, and I've loved this conversation of, of sort of exploring philosophies and dynamics. And um, I, I'm also curious to to know how you go about this thinking. If that's not too meta, um, in that I've enjoyed your tweets and your LinkedIn posts, and um, and often I sort of I think I'm going to come back to that and have a look. And uh, and I, I look at your models that you, you create and your graphics and I think that's, I'm just going to take a little bit of time for me to process that and if, often sort of hold my phone up or twist my head around and have a look at the model and, and think, oh, I, I don't know whether I'd put that there, but now I'm thinking, why is that there? And um, so I'm just curious to know um, a little bit, almost beyond the ideas and the models and the dynamics about what what sort of motivated you to start pulling some of these together and um, forming them and also then pressing publish so that you were sharing them with other people too? Full disclosure, you're not meant to look at them on a phone. They'd be better on an iPad or, or on a computer screen. Yeah, you've got, you've got to you've got to screen, freeze the screen so that I can start rotating it around and looking at it, yeah. I need to figure that out and I will at some point figure that out when I've got some time. Um, I guess when I did my master's, I, I was interested in expertise, I was interested in decision-making, and I was interested in technical models. And I, that, you know, that's pushed me towards um, uh, neuroeconomics, neuroscience, cognitive psychology, and I just love that world now. It's just fascinating to me, and I'm a, I'm a student of that. And one of the things that I've sort of picked up uh, is this idea of constellations of knowledge you know metaphorically i love this idea of electro electrical activity in the brain a new knowledge is just a new connection between two points and so the way my brain works is quite it's models and it's looking for connections between things and so i am i just love the idea that new knowledge to me is you might have two modular pieces of knowledge but can you figure out a connection between those two things so when you articulated there, you said, I might not put that there. Well, that's because we're all so idiosyncratic in our, yeah. in our beliefs and our understanding and how we make sense of the world and what our expertise is, that things fit differently based on the patterns that are firing in our brain. How cool is it if through a graphic or through a discussion, you create a connection that wasn't there before, an association between two, two points of knowledge in your brain that now become connected so, so that's really cool. In terms of, um, I'm, I'm a runner. Well, I've become a runner. I'm not an endurance athlete, uh, but I do do quite a lot of running. I, I, uh, I wrote my master's running. So I used to do the reading and then I would go out and I would run. And at the time I was doing a charity challenge and I was trying to run pretty much uh, a marathon a week in cumulative distance. It was amazing what you can achieve when you just met, met, use metacognition, thinking about thinking to actually begin to produce stuff. And so then I discovered Audible and it changed my life because now you can just, you can eat books for breakfast, but you have to do something with them to try and create a form or a bond between knowledge. Otherwise you'll lose it forever. And so uh, the blended graphics were an opportunity for me to begin to try and make something real world out of something that's just existing between my ears. And Blended Intelligence, the website, came out of sort of this idea of, do you know, I think practitioners probably struggle with a lot of the stuff that I've struggled with over the years. Um, and uh, and I would quite like to to capture these things and get people's view on them. And if, if anybody ever does go on the website, they'll see, I'd like to have conversations about them and hear what people's thoughts are and whether they're useful or whether they're not. And when people do engage me, they're always very nice about them, which is great. But are they sticky ideas? Do they stick with people? Do they think about them? Do they take them into their practice? I was speaking to one practitioner who said they print them off and they put them up in the organization that they work for and they talk about them. That was hugely humbling for me because, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's what I love. I just love the idea that together we talk and together we learn and together we're better for it. And I suppose that blended intelligence, the, the reason why it's called that and the reason why that stuff is there is because... You know, we need to get people from different backgrounds with different perspectives and heuristics talking. 
And in doing so, we build out shared mental models that have more complexity. And in that complexity, we've got greater understanding, which enables us hopefully to do better things. Um, in my leadership philosophy now, that's everything. Create a learning environment, blend a team of people together who mutually respect one another, and then create some really safe disagreement and some really safe conflict that creates really cool things. That's it, you know. Um, and so that, 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 that's where the sort of the graphics came from. And the whole, what I was thinking at the time was I might want to do something that's, that's freelance and, and is, is like supporting practitioners and supporting uh, organizations to, to get better out of their teams. And, um, and so really the website exists A for that, but the ideas exist to promote um, discussion around things that, that may or may not be important, not from a technical, a deep technical lens, but more about how we think about thinking and how we approach the stuff that we do. And so if that comes across, cool. And if not, I'll go back and revisit the brief. <laughs> love that. I, I love the fact that it's um, a, probably, a, 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 we could probably create a model here with this, but um, about self-discovery yourself you know that that i'm processing your thoughts um you're testing them by by pressing publish you're testing them too because that very notion of i've got an idea but rather than living just in my head i'm going to put it out there and that internally does quite a bit to you doesn't it in terms of is this ready no what about that thought that will i need to cover off these different dynamics the the spirit of contribution um but also solving a problem that you might be seeing too, that other people are probably going to be experiencing this, this dynamic. And so here's, here's some thoughts that actually might not solve it, but it at least prompts some thoughts and some consideration that, that at least that's a thing that, that you can get your head around. Steve, I really wrestle, I really wrestle with them before I do hit, hit send. I, I wrestle with the ideas and whether the connections make sense to me, which reinforces my learning but you probably know this as well. When you do hit send, it's, it's quite lonely because a lot of the time you do get no feedback. You don't you don't get any likes, which is like the 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 endorphin hit that you get when somebody gives you a bit of feedback that they like something, and you're left wondering: Is this so um, different from what performance sport is that it's just too far away? And uh, I guess. Uh, I also quite like that. So if someone sees it and they hate it and they stop following me, I'm totally fine with that because it's created an emotional reaction. That in itself is powerful, you know. Um, and, you know, sometimes I think that's that's kind of what it's all about, isn't it? You don't get feedback always and uh, you can put effort, time and energy into something, but it's about it's about the personal journey, isn't it, and what you get from that and whether that influences somebody, shapes a thought or or they take that and run with it. It's all good, you know. the The learning that you're getting from it is is really cool. Well, that's that's I guess what the the podcast is about too. You know, connecting with people, having these rich discussions, using it as an excuse to to reconnect, but but explore some topics and um, press publish and see if anyone likes it. <laughs> and if not, if not, I've I've had a very nice time. Thank you very much. <laughs> and so have I. And thank you very much for inviting me to have a conversation with you. It's been it's been absolutely brilliant. I've really enjoyed it, and I found your questions challenging, which is always fun. So thank you very much for having me. Oh no, thank you, Ryan. And and um, you've mentioned the website uh, blendedintelligence.com. Sorry, blended-intelligence.com. Um, can where, where else can people find uh, your work and follow along and um, choose to unfollow you from yeah yeah um, well you can yeah, I'm on at blended team on Twitter so if you did want to have a look at some of the stuff that I post up there that you'd find me there I'm on LinkedIn um, and uh, and obviously everything all my ideas are on on the website so if I do if I do a slide it ends up there and sometimes I ping them up on link, LinkedIn and Twitter um, but but they're actually all there and there's quite a deep amount of them in there so you could just get lost in there and, and how I've, I intend that to work is as a bit of a sort of spider graph so what I'm trying to do is next to each graphic, I've got links now to other things. So if you want to go a little bit down the rabbit hole with things that maybe overlap or ideas that overlap or that there's bonds or connections between, that's quite good fun, you know. So, but I find it quite good fun. But hey, I'm an egghead and a bit of a geek. So, but for others, if you did go on there and you started clicking through, you would you would see that sometimes there's golden threads um, between what I do. I do need to keep updating the link, the connections though, because there's this 
website gets bigger, I'm aware that there's stuff that I need to link back to stuff that I started out with. So, but yeah, that's where that's where you'll find that stuff. All right. Well, I'd encourage people to to go down that rabbit hole. You'll definitely find it rewarding and um, and enlightening. And your thinking and your um, your intent is just brilliant. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Now we've got plenty more to come. So if you'd like to support and champion us, then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you tune in. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. All the links are in the show notes. So in the meantime, have a great week. Thank you.